Welcome to Process This, a podcast for the sterile processing community. Isham invites you to log on, listen, and learn twice a month. Now it's time to process this with your host, clinical educator, John Wood. Welcome to the Process This podcast. This is episode number 47. Thanks for joining me today. So we are taking a break in the last 100 yard series. I hope that you have found this series as interesting as I have. There's been some great discussion on the show with packaging engineers, manufacturers, and users just like you. If you haven't started the series yet, the series starts with episode number 44 and then continues through episode 45 and 46. But never fear, the series will continue, so be on the lookout for future episodes. So today on the show, we're going to be taking some time to answer some frequently asked questions. But before that, there are some important dates coming up. October 1st through the 15th, the CHL pilot exam. Do you currently hold a CRCST? and are in a sterile processing leadership position, or maybe hoping one day to become a manager or supervisor. Isham Certification in Healthcare Leadership, CHL, exam is being updated, and we want you to be a part of the process. From October 1st through the 15th, Isham will offer a pilot test for the newly updated CHL exam. As an incentive for taking part in the pilot exam, The exam is being offered for only $75. Now this is 40% off the standard examination fee. So for more information on the Certified Healthcare Leader Pilot Exam, go to isham.org. Let me spell that out for you. I-A-H-C-S-M-M dot org. So if you're interested, time is running out for this opportunity. Isham Nation, stay tuned for a message from the fine folks at Pure Processing. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to protect your patients from avoidable illness, provide optimal support for your surgical departments, and avoid workplace injuries. We call this Mission Possible. By enabling a department in which work is efficient, ergonomic, and effective, you eradicate HAIs in your facility and optimize patient safety. This message will never self-destruct because there will always be a need for what you do. To honor you and celebrate Sterile Processing Week, Pure Processing is hosting a free Mission Possible social media contest. Go to pureprocessing.com spweek21 to request a poster for your department. Submit a photo or video on LinkedIn, Facebook, or Instagram of your department with the Mission Possible poster using the hashtag SPWeek2021. You can also print a free activity guide and free photo props by visiting pureprocessing.com SPWeek21. 
At the end of SP Week, Pure Processing will award a random prize winner out of those that submit a photo or video. Thank you, Pure Processing, for supporting our sterile processing professionals. All right. Well, instead of a regular interview this week, I wanted to talk about some frequently asked questions. Now, these questions may or may not have a specific answer in Amy or AORN guidelines or some other resource. You know, these are, you know, different questions that I see and some that I just found interesting that, you know, I thought maybe it might be useful or helpful for you. For example, my first question how long do you need to retain sterilization records? You know, I get this question all the time. And, and honestly, this can be kind of a difficult question to answer, as you might have already figured out. And that's because the AMI ST79 standards, the standards we all go to, you know, our go-to standard is very broad when it comes to sterilization records. And it says that it's up to each facility to determine because each facility is different and each state is different based on state and local regulations. Okay, so that's kind of the wording that you're gonna find in the AMI ST79. And you know what? You're right, it, it's not very helpful. <laughs> and that's because you have to go do the work. You have to do some research. So if I were in your situation, here's kind of some of the advice that I would pass on to you or some things that you need to think about. So first, and, and one of the first questions that I always ask is, does your facility process ethylene oxide, EO? So you may have heard that you need to keep sterilization records for 30 years. Now, where does that come from? Okay, so there is a document other than ST79. There is another document, and it's called Amy ST41. And this is the ethylene oxide sterilization in healthcare facilities. It was a 2008 revised 2012. Now, if you process ethylene oxide in your facility, uh, you might want to grab this document. It's going to tell you everything you need to know about ethylene oxide. Okay, so again, here you're going to find a similar statement in ST79 about sterilization records that you should uh, retain according to your policy and procedures, and those should be established by the healthcare facility individually based on where you're at. So if you keep reading in this document, the ST41, you're going to later on see a statement. And that statement's going to read, Employees must be notified of their personal monitoring results within 15 days of when the monitoring report is available and a copy of that monitoring record must be kept in each employee's file in accordance with OSHA AMI Single User License Standard. These records must be maintained by the healthcare facility for the duration of employment for at least 30 years thereafter. Okay, so, you know, I always like to go straight to the source. You know, when there is a statement that references, like Amy here is referencing the OSHA document, I always like to go straight to the source and see what exactly they're talking about. So for here, we're gonna go to the exact reference and the wording that we're gonna find in the OSHA standards here. So if you go to OSHA, you're going to go to, it's really easy to find, so don't rack your brain over this. If you just go to OSHA.org, it's going to be kind of difficult. 
what I usually like to do is just write in OSHA. And then here you go. Here's the key numbers you need to know. It's 1910.1047. Okay. Go to type that in OSHA 1910.1047. It's going to take you to the ethylene oxide information. Now, where do we get that 30 years from? So let, let's read kind of the exact wording. So if you go to OSHA 1910.047, you're going to go to, you have to, and you have to scroll down. There's quite a lot of information here, but you want to go to exposure measurements and it's 1910.01047K2I. Okay. Under that section, it says the employer shall keep an accurate record of all measurements taken to monitor employee exposure to ETO. So they're still using ETO instead of EO, but we won't fault them for that as prescribed in paragraph D of the section. Okay, great. So the employer shall keep accurate record of measurements taken to monitor. So any monitoring of employee exposures you have to keep. Now, if you go down just a little bit from there, it's going to tell you for how long. So 1910.1047, and this is K2 triple I, so I, I, I. And here it reads, the employer shall maintain this record for at least 30 years. Okay, ding, ding, here we have our 30 years. So exposure measurements, when you're monitoring employee exposure to EO, you have to maintain those records for 30 years. Okay, so... Then we go down to another section and it's medical surveillance. And this is in section 1910.1047K3I. And here it reads, the employer shall establish and maintain an accurate record for each employee subject to medical surveillance. All right, so we're talking about medical surveillance here. And then it's gonna tell us how long we need to keep that. So if you, again, if you go down just a little bit further, 1910.1047 and it's K3 triple I, so I, 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 and it reads, the employer shall ensure that this record is maintained for the duration of the employment plus 30 years. Okay, so now, now it says, uh, you know, medical surveillance, duration of employment plus 30 years. So we have our 30 years. So that's where we're getting 30 years when it comes to E sterilization. Now, if you will notice that this doesn't say anything about keeping sterilization records for 30 years, it only says exposure monitoring of employees and medical surveillance. So what do you do? Now, for me, if I were in your shoes, I would keep all sterilization records that correspond to exposure monitoring, right? And this is kind of why. So let's say that you have an employee 15 years from now that, you know, is questioning exposure. Maybe he's going through some legal proceedings or something, says he's been exposed and, you know, he has some information. Well, you have all the records. You have one, you have those exposure records. You have your medical surveillance because you've kept all those things, right? But then you also have the sterilization records and the records of what's happened to that EO sterilization machine, right? You can tell, and then you have proof to say, listen, in the past 20 years, we have not had a break in, you know, or an exposure 
uh, due to the machine, right? There's no, no out of the ordinary uh, exposures have happened, right? So you keep all that information. You have that as backup document to support any type of litigation. And that's going to kind of bring me into uh, the next thing here is not only have I heard the 30 years, and again, we, we, we really associate that with ETO, but I've always heard folks say that you have to keep records for three years. Well, I've never really understood where that three years comes from. You know, I, I hear it all the time. My suspicion, and again, this is just my suspicion, is that three years probably corresponds with the Joint Commission triannual survey. Uh, but that that's really just me guessing, you know, because uh, you keep those records every three years, you know, you have your three-year triannual. But really, how how long should you keep the records? Well, let's take some, let's take a minute to think about this. You know, does your facility process any type of implantable devices, such as plates or screws? Does your facility participate in any type of IUSS? Has your facility ever had an HAI? Or is there a possibility that your facility is going to have an HAI, hospital-acquired infection? Right. Well, that pretty much covers every facility. So if you have any of those, if, if even if you, an infection is possible in your hospital, then, you know, there's really some legal considerations here. When folks ask me how long to keep records, I say, well, what are the statute of limitations for lawsuits in your state or your local area? Sterilization records should be kept long enough to satisfy those statute of limitations. So I really recommend that each facility reach out to their facility risk or facility legal department and determine what those statute of limitations are for your area. And depending on those limitations, record retention can then kind of be determined. Now, there's always that thought that if there's any governance, whether in the state or local, that are more strict than any kind of uh, statute of limitations, then you need to abide by those regulations. But if you determine what the statute of limitations is, it's going to give you a really good idea of how long you should start keeping those records. And usually, uh, from my experiences, that's, that's well over three years. You know, we're talking 10 years, maybe 20 years. So uh, if you're looking to really figure out where or how long you should keep those records, that's a great place to start. And that's generally where I tell folks, because Whatever that statute of limitation is, is generally going to cover uh, pretty much anything else that you're going to find out there. So uh, if you're not sure, again, contact your, your legal department, reach out to them, ask them, you know, hey, what happens if we have an infection? Uh, there's a lawsuit brought against the facility, uh, you know, and what if there is a summons on my records, you know, and I'm and I have to produce that information? How long should I keep my records in order to protect the hospital, protect the department, and protect the employees. So something to think about when you're talking about record retention. Now, occasionally I get this question, are water bottles acceptable in sterile processing if they have a cap or if they can be closed? Okay. Now, some of you might think that this is a no-brainer, and I get it, right? Uh, you know, sterile processing times can be demanding, it's physically challenging, you know, and hydration is important to maintaining good physical conditioning. But unfortunately, regardless of being capped or not, 
drinks, water bottles, food are not permitted in restricted areas of sterile processing. Now here, here in this situation, we do have actual documentation that you can refer to, uh, especially if you're trying to put together a policy. And you can find this information in Amy ST79 2017, and it's gonna be in section 3.2.3. Now here it defines those areas, and in that definition it tells you uh, where you can have those items. So it goes into two areas, unrestricted areas and then restricted areas. Unrestricted areas, these areas may include locker rooms, break rooms, meeting rooms, offices, uh, sterilizer service access rooms, and it says that street clothes are permitted in these areas. Public access to these areas may be limited based on facility policy and procedures. But here we go. Here's the important part. The specific areas where food and drink is available or permitted are break rooms, meeting rooms, or offices. And this should be identified in your policies and procedures. So along with the un unrestricted area definition there, it also talks about restricted area. And it says that restricted areas are areas in decontamination, preparation, packaging, sterilization, processing, sterile storage, and distribution. So in those restricted areas, you cannot have water bottles, can't have food, can't have drinks. So there you go. No food or drink in sterile processing. And I'm sorry, I hate it, but you know, that, that's the world we live in. So, okay, that was a softball. I apologize, but uh, you know, it was, it was a frequently asked question. So here's a, here's a question that I found really interesting, uh, and it's about guidance concerning instrumentation exposed to chemotherapy drugs. This is a great question. And I guess if I had to bet, I, I'd probably bet that a majority of the listeners out there have probably never had to deal with this type of situation. You know, I, I never really have, but it doesn't mean that I never will. And it doesn't mean that I, I don't need to know the information. Knowing the resources and things like this in these key situations, you know, it's really key to safety when processing instruments. So let's take a second to talk about instrumentation exposed to chemotherapy drugs. Now, this information can be found at usp.org or, you know, simply the, the fastest way to get you there is to simply Google USP 800. Again, it's USP 800. So that's some great information. And the, the next resource that is good is the AORN guideline for medication safety. Now, this might be a little bit more accessible for you. In the medication safety, and we're, it's going to be recommendation 10.10, .10, and it talks about use single instruments if available, you know, and that goes for anything, you know, even when you're dealing with CJD or, you know, chemotherapy drugs, anything that's gone, that's really harmful and difficult to clean on instrumentation. If you can use a single instrument that, you know, that's always preferable, but, you know, sometimes it's not practical, but here it goes on and talks about the use of disposable single-use instruments eliminates really that need to institute any type of special protocols for deactivation and decontamination, you know, in that risk of even exposing personnel to hazardous uh, medications like the chemotherapy drugs. And it also talks about, you know, the process of deactivating the medication and removing the medication, that chemotherapy drug from the instrument, may also be harmful to the instrument itself. 
So as stated above, the, the key, so really the key to chemotherapy drugs is deactivating the actual drug, right? So that's really the key. For instruments and surfaces contaminated with hazardous medications. So we can find in 10.11 under medication safety, it, it reads, for instruments and surfaces contaminated with hazardous medications, deactivate, clean, decontaminate with agents in, indicated for that type of contamination and the surface to be cleaned or decontaminated per manufacturer cleaning instructions. So uh, what it really says in uh, the 10.11 and also uh, 10.11.1, it's really talking about just the fact that you really need to deactivate the drug. So in the the 10.11.1, it says select and use agents for deactivation, cleaning, and decontamination based on the surface medication manufacturer. So here it says that you really need to deactivate using the drug manufacturer's instructions for use. So not only do you need the instrument's instructions for use, but you need the manufacturer of the drug. And it's going to give you that information to deactivate. Other things to think about when you're uh, doing some kind of you know hazardous material removal from instruments is think about your PPE, especially related to chemotherapy drugs. Are you, one, is it rated? Is it rated to handle the chemical? You know, there, there are specific gloves and PPE that are rated for chemotherapy drugs. Two, are, are you disposing of the PPE correctly? Once you deactivate it, once you clean it, are you disposing of your PPE correctly? Because it, it can't just go in the regular trash and it can't just go in biohazard trash. There are special procedures for disposing of the chemotherapy exposed PPE. So a great question you know, and a lot to think about when taking on instruments exposed to hazardous uh, drugs or chemicals or, you know, similar to chemotherapy drugs. All right, next question. Should the person in charge of sterile processing be qualified? Okay, so I think this question is really asking or really addressing, should the leadership in sterile processing know what's going on in sterile processing. Generally, this type of question really stems from a situation where maybe there's an OR nurse or supply chain just became in charge of the sterile processing department. There's usually that question, you know, is this the right person for the job? Well, to best answer this question, we're going to go back and we're going to look at the AORN guidelines and we're going to specifically focus on the sterilization guideline. So in that guideline, uh, recommendation 12 under sterilization, it's 12.1. It reads, assigned responsibility and authority for leadership of the sterile processing team to qualified personnel. So here it says, you know, personnel who are qualified to lead sterile processing team are knowledgeable in sterile processing fundamentals. They're knowledgeable in quality monitoring, sterilization safety issues, regulatory compliance, sterilization equipment, facility design related to sterilization. You know, the, the complexity of sterilization tasks coupled with, you know, the ever-changing technologies in surgical and procedural instrumentation demands acquire a high degree of expertise among sterile processing leaders. To answer the question, it's, 
yeah, they, they need to know what's going on in sterile processing. Also, you can look down in 12.2, that same recommendation. It says leaders should be knowledgeable about sterilization processes. Yeah, yeah I, I would agree with that statement. And it goes on to read, Managers who supervise the work of others maintain extensive knowledge of the techniques and equipment used by personnel to perform their work. Technical knowledge is necessary to plan and organize work operations. And it goes on to say to direct, train personnel in specialized activities, to monitor quality of work, evaluate performance, and coordinate improvement efforts. Technical expertise prepares leaders for dealing with disruptions in the work due to equipment failures, quality defects, accidents, insufficient materials, and coordinating problems. Thank you, ARN. Uh, I, you know, I definitely agree with this recommendation. It's, it's, yeah, you know, they should be knowledgeable in the complex processes of sterile processing. This doesn't mean that an OR nurse or supply chain uh, personnel can't do the job, but really it means that those folks, you know, there's a lot in sterile processing. You know, there's a lot to know. There's a lot you have to do, especially when it comes to the regulations and standards. It's a lot to learn. And really, you need to learn those things to really be an effective and qualified leader in sterile processing. So here's kind of a a difficult question, and it's, it's more probably difficult when you have to address the problem as far as uh, it being a, a difficult question itself. The question is, what does the standard say about wearing perfumes or colognes in sterile processing? Okay, well, currently there are no standards. You know, if you look in the AMI ST79, the 2017 it doesn't really address wearing perfumes and colognes, right? So you're not going to find that specific wording. And, uh, you know, when I was researching, I also looked at the AORN guidelines, found nothing that specifically addressed the issue. So the problem is that in this case, you know, excessive perfumes and colognes, it could potentially cause respiratory stress. And individuals who are already suffering or already have a precondition of asthma you know, it could induce asthma attacks. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it really could be a problem. And, and if this is a problem, and this is kind of where I go, how do I, you know, really solve this type of issue? You know, if it is a problem in your facility, what I recommend is really consult your human resources department for guidance. You know, use your folks, use your human resource folks, you know, and if necessary, because there is a potential, you know, if somebody, again, if somebody has asthma, you know, there's a potential to induce asthma attacks. We don't want to harm somebody, right? So there is a potential that you may need to put that in a policy or procedure. Um, and again, go to your human resources department, use a multidisciplinary team, create the policy and procedure to the concern, right? And, and you know, again, this is a touchy issue because we, we all, you know, that, that person may feel comfortable wearing those perfumes or colognes, and it may be something they've always done. So it's kind of a touchy issue, but if it's potentially going to harm somebody, then that's where your thinking needs to lead you. And again, use your resources in your facility to help you deal with this issue and then create that policy and procedure. All right. So last question, can you sterilize gauze within your surgical tray? Okay, so this is a good question. It happens all the time. Uh, but 
you know, to answer this, let's first start uh, with our basics. Let's go back to our basics and remember that anything you sterilize should have sterilization instructions. Okay, yeah, we got that. So what do you need to do? Well, you know, if that's the case, you, you need to reach out to the manufacturer of the gauze for those instructions. You know, maybe they have instructions and you can't sterilize it, but you have to kind of think about um, how, does it, how does the gauze come? Is it unsterile uh, with the sterilization instructions? Okay. Or is it already sterile and then you're re-sterilizing it? In that case, probably not a good idea. To answer this question, if you don't have the instructions, then the, the answer to the question is simple. It's a no. It's a hard no. Then the gauze should not be sterilized. So you may be asking, why would you sterilize gauze in the first place if you if it's not part of your practice? Well, uh, I remember back when I was a scrub tech, uh, and this was a long time ago, back when I didn't know any better, didn't really know much about sterile processing. We used to uh, use gauze in the tympanoplasty sets to separate ear speculums. You know, it kept them from being scratched, you know, and it, it was easy to pull out, and it really just protected the instruments. And you know, at the time, it made great sense to me. Um, so that, that was kind of our process. What is the concern about sterilizing gauze in a set? Well, the first concern that I have with sterilizing gauze is that most unsterile gauze is not radiopaque. When you're in the operating room, the sponges, the ratex, and the gauze, with the exception of any type of wound dressing, you know, anything used in a surgical procedure has to be radiopaque. And that means that if the item suddenly is unaccounted for during the procedure, it can be identified on an x-ray. Uh, radiopaque means it's x-ray detectable, right? So gauze sterilized in a tray may not be radiopaque, and it could potentially become a retained surgical item and cause harm to the patient. Now, we definitely don't want that, right? So if your gauze can't be identified, it's not radiopaque, then, you know, there's a potential there. You know, an extra gauze in a surgical tray could create an incorrect count for the surgical team, okay? So when you're in the operating room, uh, the surgical tech and the circulating nurse, they're opening up packages. So Raytex, uh, which are smaller sponges, usually come in tens. And then your, your lap sponges, they usually come in fives, right? And so if, you, if you've got gauze in your set, in the tray, and you're putting that and they're putting that on their field, now instead of 10, you have an 11, and you would never know if that, if that gauze got put into like a belly or an open wound. So it's really important to keep the count correct and not add anything that the operating team doesn't know the operating team definitely needs to be aware of these type of concerns. So anything that you're adding to the tray, any countable things, anything that's not x-ray detectable, you know, the operating room needs to be aware that these things are in the tray and items such as gauze or any other item that's in the tray. I would say, unless you have, again, sterilization instructions, unless it's radiopaque, unless you have great communication with your operating room leadership and the folks in the room who know what's going on in those sets, then putting gauze in a tray may not be the best idea. Okay, so I hope that helps answer that question. Well, it looks like we are running out of time for today. Thanks for listening to the show.
that music means only one thing. Episode 47 is in the books. Thanks for listening to the show. To receive the CE for this episode, simply click on the link in the episode notes, fill out the required information, and select the code 30 years. Again, the code for this episode is 30 years. Remember, keep an ear out for the next episode always on the 1st and 15th of every month. Each episode's on demand, so when you're ready for us, we'll be there for you. As always, stay classy, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>